Genesis chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 18 when you do get there, but as you do that, I have a story to share with you, because everybody loves stories, especially Sharon. She loves stories. Years ago, I was driving uh, down Alpine Avenue, and uh, this can test anybody's sanctification, even on the best of days. But it was holiday season, and you know what happens at the beginning of winter? Everybody forgets how to drive. So it was one of those driving experiences. Cars are pulling out in front of me. It's just mayhem on the roads. People, for no apparent reason, decide to slam on their brakes in front of you. It's that kind of driving trip, you know? My favorite is the guy who needs to turn left into the turn lane, slows down to about five miles an hour while still in the normal lane, puts on his blinker, and does this. Ever so slowly, drifts until he's finally in the turning lane, and then I hit another red light. That's the kind of day that this was. And so I remember, in a moment of frustration, barking out to my wife, who was in the car with me, and I said, if all these people just drove as good as me, we would never, ever get in an accident. Ever. To be, you guys laugh, but I was serious, okay? I was convinced of this fact. If people drove as well as I drive, no problems on the road, and all of these idiots in front of me would just stop doing that. That was what I was hoping for. And so I'm expecting some words of uh, consolation and affirmation from my better half, you know? <laughs> I'm expecting this to happen, and what ends up happening is she and a few terse little words, just quietly says, well, that was arrogant. <laughs> and it might have been arrogant. I mean, I was still right, but it might have been arrogant. <laughs> you see, the reason I tell this story is because we all, whether we want to admit it in front of other people or not, we all tend to think that the ills of the world, the problems of the world, the sins of the world, it's an out there problem. It's all of them, right? It's never me. You guys ever think that way? The problem with politics is that side, or the problem with our culture is those people. We never talk about our sins when we talk about the problems of the world. It's always other people's problems. So I got to thinking, I was thinking, Noah and his family, as we heard about in the last couple of weeks, they were just rescued from the flood. This was God's judgment on the world for the overwhelming wickedness that had taken place. They were rescued. They were brought through the floodwaters. And I wondered if at any point Noah or his sons thought to themselves, ah, finally, the world is done with those people. The problems in the world are now fixed. Now we can restart, hit the ground running, and this world is going to operate the way it was supposed to operate. 
doesn't say that in the Bible, but I got to wondering about that. Finally, all the sinners would be gone. Do you think that, do you think that that's true? No, if you've re- read your Bible, you probably very quickly are disagreeing with me. Because here's the deal. Everything is destroyed in the world, right? But sin floats. That's my quippy little way of saying, you think the problem just got wiped out and eradicated? Think again. Because sin floats. It still exists. The world has seemingly been washed of its wicked inhabitants, right? But a wicked power still inhabits the heart of mankind, does it not? And this is the problem with the ills of the world or the sins of the world. And this is what we see precisely in this next story. So look with me, Genesis 9. Let's start at verse 18. Let's actually have everybody stand. I like when we do this. Keep you up and down. Maybe it's because I grew up Catholic and that's all you do in church is stand and sit, stand and sit. I don't know. But either way, we're going to do it. This is Genesis chapter 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Now Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. This little detail is typically what we don't tell the children in Sunday school, right? <laughs> Yay, ark, everything's happy. The giraffe's head are poking out of the window. Noah had some problems. Okay, he became drunk and he lay uncovered in his tent. Verse 22, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment. They laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Now, when Noah had awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, who is the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. You may be seated. And then stand up again. Just kidding. (laughs) The first thing that uh, this passage teaches us is probably pretty obvious to most of us. Not guaranteed, but probably pretty obvious. And it's this very simple fact. Spiritual giants like Noah, right, Abraham, these people that we look up to, think of uh, Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. Spiritual giants can fall. They can make mistakes Pastors, I don't know if you knew this, pastors can fall. They can sin. They can do things that are not pleasing to God. Unfortunately, we hear that in the news often. The righteous people 
who fear God and therefore are called righteous, just because they are people who fear God does not make them immune from sin. As one pastor has put it, I love this phrase, past piety does not guarantee future holiness. I'll say that again. Past piety, living for God, living a holy life in the past, does not guarantee that you are going to be living a holy life in the future. Because temptation exists. Sin is, as uh, it says earlier in the book of Genesis, it's crouching at the door. It's ready to, to take you and to have you. Just because we may have turned from sin and toward Jesus when we first became a Christian it doesn't necessitate that you're still repenting and still turning to Jesus now. We've all probably had moments in our Christian walk where there's tremendous growth, also had moments where we feel very dry and at times we feel far from God. This happens in all Christians' lives and Noah is not an exception to this. He was considered a righteous man in his generation, don't get me wrong, but he was not sinless. And this story reminds us of that fact. He did fear God, though. And God chose to use Noah to deliver the rest of the human race, the remnant, right, him and his family, of the human race, though he sent a just judgment of the flood to wipe out the wicked inhabitants of the world. This is all true. But we have to listen closely because one moment of weakness, even one, can cause us to sin, and sin has disastrous effects. This is simply the way sin works. It's never, ever free of consequences, as we see in Noah's story. I imagine what it would be like for any of us, you know, if you care at all about your lawn, to uh, during early spring when, you know, dandelion season and your green grass is completely yellow. You guys know those days? When those uh, dandelions get a little older and they turn into those lovely puffballs, where God has so designed seed to spread throughout the world. I wonder what would happen if you or I in our yard took a bunch of those, picked them up, and just walked like this. What do you think would happen to your yard the next year? Would it have dandelions in it? Absolutely. It would be covered with them. Because to sow a dandelion seed means you are going to have dandelions. In the same way, to do a sin, even what we might deem a small sin, still has consequences. It's simply the way sin works. So let's talk about what exactly was Noah's sin. What did he do? Let me make this uh, clear as I can. His sin was not that he drank wine. This might be controversial for some people who grew up just avoiding it so that, you know, stumbling or tripping over or something like that would never happen. But his sin wasn't that he drank wine. It wasn't that he planted a vineyard and then he drank some of that. The whole world just got wiped out. It's time to start agriculture again. All right, this is something Noah would naturally have done. The scriptures say in Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15, it says that God causes the grass to grow for the livestock. It's their food. And God plants, uh, creates plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. God created grapes, okay? If wine were a sinful substance, then we wouldn't see Jesus drinking it at the Last Supper, what we're going to celebrate later today. At, 
he wouldn't have consecrated it if it were something that he wanted us to always, always, always avoid because it is inherently sinful. So what was Noah's sin? Noah's sin was that he gave into something we don't talk about often. He gave into gluttony. He gave into the overconsumption, the abuse, the taking advantage of God's good gifts to mankind. The scriptures make this abundantly clear. It says, drunkenness is the sin. Do not be drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit, is what Paul tells us. Every good gift, think about this, every good gift can be and often is abused by mankind. Food is a wonderful good gift, isn't it? We're all thankful we have meals every day. Can food be abused? Absolutely. We rarely talk about the ramifications of that, but food can absolutely be abused. Those who fear God are those who receive God's gifts rightly. They do it in the right manner without taking advantage of them. Proverbs 23, I want to direct you to flip there for just a moment. The Bible absolutely gives us warnings about alcohol, doesn't it? It's filled with warnings about alcohol, and this is one of the clearest ones to me. In Proverbs uh, 23, starting in verse 31, we get a warning for every human, (laughs) everyone here. Verse 31, Proverbs 23, it says, Do not look at wine when it is red. Just imagine somebody staring at wine through a glass. They're being consumed by it. Don't look at it when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup. It goes down smoothly, doesn't it? But in the end... It bites like a serpent, and it stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things, and your heart will utter perverse things. If you've ever been around somebody who's been drunk, you know this to be true. They don't see things rightly, do they? And what starts to flow out of their mouth the more and more and more they drink? What dwells within their heart is what starts to flow out of their mouth. Okay, They start to utter perverse things. Verse 34 says, you will be like one, here's a little metaphor for us, who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I wasn't hurt. That's what I think drunk people sound like, apparently. (laughs) They beat me, but I didn't feel it. (laughs) When shall I wake? Hmm. I must have another drink. They're consumed by it and they become fools. So be on your guard. Noah had overindulged. He had become a fool. He had not just used the fruit of the vine, but he had abused alcohol. And this is what it looks like. Think of the story. Noah gets hammered. That's the way we would say it, right? Noah gets hammered, and he is lying down, passed out, drunk, completely naked. Is that dignified or what? This is what happens when we abuse God's gifts. We become fools. If we're not careful to guard our steps, to pursue righteousness, to walk with God, then we can give in to sin. Even people who you would think are spiritual giants, they can fall too. I got to thinking about this, and think about people in your life that you think are very godly people, people you admire and look up to for their faith. As I was thinking about this, I don't think that these spiritually mature people got that way by accident or by carelessness. Do you? 
Do you think they became people that we respect because they were careless, didn't guard their way, and just gave in to lots of things? Or do you think that they were people who were on guard against such vices? People don't become holy and more like God just because the earth has revolved around the sun a few times. Think about that. Time does not necessitate that you're drawing closer and closer to Jesus and becoming more like him. It takes a careful walk. I love how the King James says, walk circumspectly. It's a word we don't often use, but it talks about how we walk in such a manner where we're always aware of our surroundings, always aware of how the enemy might be trying to trip us up. We would be wise to, to do this, to pay attention. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, be careful, lest he fall. Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, he warns us and says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. Psalm 119 verse 9 asks the question, How can a young man keep his way pure? How is this done? The simple answer is by guarding it according to your word. By guarding your way. I was thinking, uh, think of the Old Testament, and I'm thinking of cities. And cities that are caught off guard and ambushed are cities where the watchmen aren't alert or fall asleep, right? If you're not paying attention and being on defense, you will likely get attacked. The armies that aren't victim to a surprise attack are those who have watchmen who are alert who are ready, and who are prepared to engage and do so wisely. I want us to apply this to our hearts because you guys remember, the sin isn't an out there problem, right? Sin floats in each one of us. Since that is the case, what particular sins must you be on guard against? I think the uh, Christian answer would be all of them, Jared. Yes, you're right. But be specific. Which sins uniquely tempt you? Maybe for some of you it is the abuse of alcohol. Maybe that's something to repent of today. Maybe for some of you it's the the overuse or the abuse of food. Maybe that's something that we need to repent from. Maybe for some of you it's your biting words towards other people. Just always having that snarky tone that makes other people feel less than you. Maybe for some of you, it's just the pride of your own heart, always thinking you are greater and inherently better than them. You name who the them might be. We have to apply this reality to ourselves and be on guard against things that uniquely tempt each one of us. And we all have them. We must be watchful. We must be on guard. Now, Noah wasn't the only transgressor in the story, was he? (coughs) Pardon me. In fact, this passage makes a much bigger deal about somebody else and their sin than it does about Noah and his sin. So flip with me back to Genesis 9. Verse 22 says this, And Ham, the father of Canaan, he saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. Again, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Okay. 
you might be wondering, as I was when I first ever read this passage, what's the big deal? Like, I know we don't want to see our parents naked. That's not on all of our to-do list for the day, but <laughs> why is this an issue? Why, is, why does a curse happen after this? Like, really, what's the significance of this? What's the big deal? He saw his dad naked. So what? The big deal is seen when you look more deeply at what was and what wasn't done in this story. What was done? Yes, Ham saw his father's nakedness. But what else was done? He told his two brothers outside. Now think with me, this telling, was he simply informing his brothers like a noble citizen? Hey, guys, I I want you to know, Dad, he's wasted, and you should probably do something about that. Is that what's going on? Not likely. According to most uh, commentators and most theologians, and especially the earliest Jewish traditions of how they understood this passage and how they were taught this passage century after century, this telling that Ham does is shaming his father. He's mocking his dad. He's mocking his folly, and he's adding insult to injury. This already is embarrassing enough, isn't it? But to go out and inform more people of the humiliation of your dad? This is what Ham does that was wrong. You could just imagine him saying, hey guys, guess what? You know, the righteous one, dad, that God decided to save throughout the whole ends of the earth, he is plastered right now. And more than that, I looked in there, he's completely naked. What an idiot. You could imagine what a younger brother would say in an instance like this. He's made an absolute fool of himself. This is our dad. We're supposed to, you know, honor and respect and listen to him. Give me a break. Now, you and I might react to this and say, I'm not like him in this story. I would never do such a thing. But oh, how we like to identify with the hero in the story and never the villain. What's interesting to me is how often we do the exact same thing that Ham does. For instance, you've never brought attention to another person's failings before? Really? You've never exposed the iniquity or the sin of another person for a laugh or for a boost to your pride to make yourself feel better, for self-esteem kick? Really? You've never, in an argument or when you've been angry at somebody, you've never brought up dirt on them simply because you wanted your failings to seem way too trivial to compare to theirs? You see how we're a lot more like Ham than we think we are? As I was studying this passage, it doesn't do much good to study a passage for other people, but to have the text actually do its work on your heart. And uh, this is hard. I've looked back at all the times my mouth has raced at the opportunity to throw fuel on the fire of other people's sins and embarrassments. And it's shameful. And if we're honest, we've all had those moments where, man, it's really easy to kick somebody while they're down, isn't it? To show your superiority and how much better we are than other people. James speaks of the tongue, doesn't he? You guys know this passage? The tongue, he says, is like a little 
a little fire, a little flame to spark. And when that thing gets going, what can it do? It can set a whole forest ablaze. When you're tempted to add insult to injury, to heap on the sins of other people, when you want to expose or embarrass them, have in your mind a picture of these California fires the last few weeks. We are so quick to uncover and reveal the faults of other people, aren't we? It's in our nature just to want to throw it on and pile it on. So the question in my mind is, okay, well then, what should Ham have done? What should he have done when he saw his father in that state? Uh, he, He did. So what was he supposed to do? Honestly, we see exactly what Ham should have done when we look at the response of his brothers, Shem and Japheth. When hearing about their father, the narrative seems to slow down, and now all of a sudden you get filled with extra details in the story to show you to what extent they honored their father. Read with me, starting in verse 23. After Ham blabs this to his brothers, it says that Shem and Japheth took a garment and they placed it on their shoulders. This was their response. They walked backward. They walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And in case you wondered, it gives us more detail. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. They did everything they could to cover up this problem and take care of it and not make it any worse than it already was. You see what Ham should have done? In Exodus 20, this is the Ten Commandments, verse 12, God tells us, Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God has given you. Honor your father and mother. This inherently means don't do things that would dishonor them, that would embarrass them, that would cause contempt and shame to pile up on them. Honor them instead. To bring dishonor in the sight of God is a wicked and vile thing to do. We are called to respect them even when they make utter fools of themselves like Noah did. Even then, respect and show honor to them. Why? You know what this does? This covers their shame. This covers their shame. 1 Peter 4.8 tells us to keep loving one another earnestly. And then it tells us why. Because love covers what? A multitude of sins. The reason why we are to love one another in this way is to cover up some of the shame and embarrassment of other people's sins. This passage doesn't tell us to love and respect only respectful and lovable people in their times of righteous living when they don't trip up. That's easy. This passage tells us to love people even when they make themselves embarrassments. After all, be honest with me. Didn't Jesus love you at your worst? When you were an utter embarrassment? I look at my life and when I was saved and the sins that I was a part of and I look back and you remember that feeling of heaviness, that feeling of shame, of embarrassment? I'm certainly glad Jesus didn't say, Jared, thank you so much for confessing that. Everybody, I want you to know 
what I'm saving him from. And then he launches out this list that rolls all the way down the aisle way, giving us every possible, uh, every possible sin that we could have ever have done or thought or imagined and says, take a good look, everybody. This is what I rescued Jared from. No, Jesus looked at you at your worst and he says, it's finished, it's covered, done. Psalm 103 says, if you, O Lord, would count our sins, who could stand? Nobody. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We praise God for his mercy, don't we? So, to apply this to our lives, we have to ask ourselves that question. How do you treat those who have fallen? Do you talk about them a lot? Keep bringing it up? I know I'm tempted to. Do you heap shame upon them, adding more and more and more? Galatians 6 tells us that if anyone is caught in any transgression, I think that covers a lot, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Love them like God loves them, in other words. Tell them the truth, absolutely. That's a part of love. Culture doesn't think it is, but it is. Tell them the truth, but cover them in prayer and cover them in love. Ham did not do that for his father. The scope of this passage goes far beyond these true principles of being on guard and covering up the shame of other people, though. One of the most important things I think we can do when we're reading the Bible is back away just a little bit and think about how this story that we like get zeroed in on, how this story fits in with the rest of the story of Genesis or the rest of the story of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, or how it works with the whole Old Testament or even the whole Bible. And so that's what we're going to do right now. Tradition holds that Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible. So when the Egyptians had the Israelites in slavery for how many years? 400 years. They finally were delivered. Moses says, let my people go. God used Moses and delivers his people from there. They're in the wilderness. They get the law. They get the covenant given to them. Then they go to conquer the promised land inhabited by Canaanites. We'll come back to that in a second. Inhabited by Canaanites and they were too afraid to go do it. And so they wander around the desert for another 40 years until everybody from the first generation who was too shaking in their boots scared until all of those finally died off and then the new generation goes and actually conquers the land. So tradition says that Moses wrote Genesis, including the the whole Pentateuch, that he wrote that during this time. So imagine for just a second that you're an Israelite and you are hearing this for the first time. You're hearing these stories Maybe you've heard them before, but you actually have it concretely now. Imagine how they would read this passage. Verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, not Ham. A servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan, not Ham, Be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Who is cursed? Canaan. 
Who did the sin? Ham. I'll be honest, this is a pickle. Read many commentaries explaining this passage. All of them say something different because this is notoriously hard to understand and, and fill in the gap of why this happened. The point still remains that it happened. But the question that we always want to know is, well, why did that happen? And we don't always get those answered. Some commentators believe that Canaan is cursed. Who was, Canaan was the, the fourth, the youngest son of Ham. Look at uh, chapter 10, verse 6. The sons of Ham were Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Canaan was the youngest son of Ham. But because when they left the ark, when Noah and his three sons left the ark, God gave them a blessing, and he told them the same thing he told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill this earth with more images of me. When he did that, many commentators say, well, since he was already blessed, he couldn't therefore now be cursed because the gifts, the calling, the blessing of God, that's irrevocable. So we can't take that away. That's one argument. Another says, they look at the law and they say that sin is so significant in its scope and it's so destructive in its nature that the sins of the father are visited upon even their children. So because of his sin, it has affected pre, like following generations. That's another one. Others believe that this was in fact a prophecy of Noah, that God gave him these words to be able to utter essentially into reality what he, was, what he had foreordained, what he had already predicted would be the, the fate of the Canaanites. All of those seem pretty good to me. They all have merit, right? They, they seem plausible. But the point here is this. Canaan is cursed. You know, think about Israel again. Those wicked inhabitants that God is telling us to go and wipe out and kick out of the land. You know, those, those inhabitants that God had said will be a servant to us over and over and over again. Those are the very ones I'm telling you to go and wipe out. Also, you know why I'm telling you to go and wipe them out? It's because there is no fear of me before them. They are a people who are an enemy with God. Therefore, they are an enemy of Israel. You see how this starts to put into perspective why this passage would even be given for them? It's, it is filled with stories for us to learn from, moral examples that we, or immoral examples that we should avoid, obviously. But more than that, this serves as a key understanding of how the wicked Canaanites got to their terrible sexual practices, their idolatry, all of their hatred toward the God of Israel. It all happens because, looking back in the story, we see how wicked Ham was and how disrespectful to his father he indeed was. This entire passage that we covered today serves as an explanation, as a reminder, and a warning. It's an explanation to the Israelites so that they might know of the wickedness, the learned wickedness, that they have inherited from Ham and from Canaan. This story serves as a reminder to Israel and us as well. It's a reminder of how seriously God takes sin, even ones we don't think are that big of a deal, like, I don't know, gluttony or dishonoring our parents. These are very serious in the eyes of God. And finally, the story is a warning. It's a warning to all of Israel and to us to keep a careful watch over our lives. Even God's children, you and me, we can, in a moment of weakness of the flesh, give in to sin. And we mustn't do that. 
Now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, whom God gave you and indwells you, if you're a believer in Jesus, by the power of his Spirit in you, you can fight the good fight. You can keep guard over your life. You can watch your way to ensure that you don't fall into these same things that our forefathers have fallen into. Everything written in the scriptures is written for our edification so that we may learn and live accordingly. Keep a careful watch over your life, therefore. Keep a careful watch over your time, how you spend your time. Keep a careful watch over the things you love. Because sin floats. It still dwells within our hearts, even though its power through Christ has been defeated. It's still there to tempt us if we give in.